Howdy folks, I'm Chris Connor, and you are listening to CC Life Science. I hope your summer is off to a good start. It's been a few weeks, but we're back and I have a lot of interesting episodes lined up and ready to go. Next week on Life Science Marketing Radio, my other podcast, Jackson Hyde will talk about managing a sustainable organization with ongoing opportunities for every stakeholder. And then on this podcast, CC Life Science, we have episodes on pharmacoeconomics, identifying pathogens in clinical and environmental samples using Raman spectroscopy and AI. And then we're going to talk about infectious diseases and public health. So make sure you are subscribed. Now, let's jump into my episode with Maggie Vantangoli, Director of Marketing at Araceli Biosciences. Maggie, welcome. Thanks, Chris. I'm excited to be here today. All right, we're going to talk today about AI for high content analysis. So briefly explain what high content analysis is, for those who don't know, and how it's used in drug discovery and development. Perfect. Yeah, so... Um, the most basic description of high content analysis is really automated microscopy. So everybody thinks of microscopy as sitting down at the microscope, looking through the eyepieces and looking at how cells change. And high content really takes that to the next level, making it much higher throughput, um, looking at more features. And so it's both the process of the imaging platform that does it, um, as well as all the analysis software to extract all the information. Um, and then... It can be used a lot of ways in drug discovery, but really you're taking this really rich phenotypic information, um, you know, whether a cell's rolling up or dying or a neuron is producing more outgrowth or less outgrowth, and quantifying that in some way that gives you some insight as to how a drug or a compound might be working or might be toxic to a cell or a population. So you talk about, um, you know, rolling up and dying or more axon outgrowth. Mm-hmm. A lot of these, are there other changes that aren't morphological that you can detect? And what what is the value of those of seeing those morphological changes? Obviously, if something rolls up and dies, that's significant. Yeah, that's a dramatic one. That's usually the easiest one to see. Um, yes and no. So it's, you know, the way that we get this information is generally in high content is you you take cells and you stain them with a variety of fluorescent stains or dyes or even use antibody stains to, to target specific proteins. Um, so you can do things, you know, that are, I guess, less morphological, like staining for a specific cell marker and seeing if that cell is positive or negative. So, you know, trying to classify different immune cell populations within a sample all the way up to, you know, is a cell undergoing apoptosis? So they're positive for a different caspase marker, for example, Um, all the way to information as to, you know, it is rolling up and dying, which is pretty obvious. Um, So there is morphological information. It it all parses out to morphological information because it's, yeah, at the end of the day, you're looking at images which are made up of pixels that are changing. Um, but ultimately, you can you can target whether something's green or not, or a cell is positive or not, um, and that's I guess hypothetically less less morphological than kind of structural changes within the cell as they respond to compounds or chemicals. Um, and the next step of that is extracting that information, turning it into numbers, and plotting it, and seeing you know maybe this compound works like a, a control I'm expecting, or maybe it could potentially target this pathway because I'm seeing this effect. 
and that gets kind of ranked and ordered into the further drug discovery process. Right. So I am not, cell biology is probably the area of biology I know the least. That's all right. <laughs> the only thing I know less about than cell biology is chemistry. So don't ask me about that. But um, yeah, I'm trying to think past like when you say certain morphological cha uh, changes hint at known pathways that you can say, well, if it's doing this, there's a likelihood that this is what's behind it. And I just, yeah, I don't know what those things are. So, um, but when you talk about antibody stating, then I, I can get that. Like there's the presence or absence of some protein or other molecule that is changing. And that makes sense. And it all, as you say, it's all imaging. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that. So talk about how the neural nets are used to segment these effects and what in what ways can cell types or compounds be grouped based on that information? Yeah, um, we can. We really use neural nets for kind of different different approaches in the space. Um, the most, I think, basic and widely used is actually taking the images. You know, say this. I, I know we're on audio, but this is a. Um, if this was my neuron and I want to find it in an image, I could actually segment that. So segmenting that turns it into an object that you can measure. So as opposed to like an array of pixels across the camera, now we know that this, this block of pixels or chunk of pixels is a thing. Um, so we can use neural nets to segment those because traditionally in kind of older approaches for high content and image analysis in general, all you would do is set a threshold and say a pixel brighter than this is a thing and a pixel smaller than this is not a thing or you know, dimmer than this and smaller area than this is not a thing. The beauty of neural networks is instead of just looking at that one pixel measurement, they're looking at the structure as a whole. So if you think about it as the, the typical description and historical description of a neural net is training it to find a cat versus a dog or a cat in any type of picture. That's the same thing type of approach we can take. So finding cells versus debris and accurately defining those cell borders for different cell types is really, really important so that you're getting kind of a holistic view of the, all of the information within an image. A lot of the times the traditional segmentation methods might not do a great job on the cell edges, so you're losing information there. And as you're losing that information, you're carrying through that error through all of your analysis by not capturing that information. Um, so that's one of the ways neural, neural nets can be used. Um, that's probably the most common way in high content right now. It's in kind of commercial products. Um, another way that they can be used is, is kind of what you got at, which was like grouping the, the different results. Um, so that typically is done more with kind of machine learning approaches. Um, so clustering of different effects that can give kind of clues into whether or not these compounds are acting similarly to each other. Um, that's kind of how we make some of those decisions we were just talking about, which was, okay, if I see this morphological change that looks like compound A, maybe compound B is working similar because I'm seeing a similar morphological change. And that's kind of where we can dig into some of the pathways. Um, but then we can also take that information and group those cells based on, are they all rounding up and dying as the dramatic example of that? Um, or are we seeing things that, you know, they're, cells are starting to stretch out or they're dividing faster. And that's where we can use the segmented information to then further classify our responses. 
Yeah. So for people who are only listening and don't see this in the oh, yeah. in the video snippet, yeah. So Maggie's holding up her hand when she's describing a neuron and tracing the outline of her fingers as representative of axons, right? And that changes. Yes. And the neural nets, here's, this is everything I know about um, artificial intelligence because I watched enough videos on character recognition to understand how AIs learn to recognize the alphabet, for example, and similarly for recognizing neural cells, mm -hmm. you know, creating an object and figuring out, okay, that's a pattern. Yeah, and neural cells are, are one of the harder things because they, if you think about it like a, you know, kind of go back to anatomy and physiology or even kind of basic bio, neural cells are hard because the centers of them are really thick and bright, like they have and then they have those outgrowths that autofluorescent image typically become very dim. So those traditional segmentation methods don't, the, the difference between the outgrowth structure and the background of the image is very, very narrow a lot of the time. Um, so you might not capture that information as well with kind of a traditional segmentation approach as opposed to a, a trained neural network. So let's go back to, you know, you see a pattern of behavior or morphology changes in a cell and you say, this is compound B, but it looks like it's doing the same thing as compound A. This really gets to the essence of what we're trying to do because presumably we're screening lots and lots of compounds of that weren't necessarily designed with any target in mind to say, is this a potential... Uh, candidate for attacking a target. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so and when you see a similar change, you go, all right, this might be in this pathway. We should look further at what else it can do. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of like the, the historical or even most um, widely used kind of approach of high content, kind of like the, the historical use of it that has driven the field. Um, and we're seeing that now evolve into, on the flip side of like drug discovery and compound discovery, um, also on toxicology types of applications, whether that's environmental or within the drug company as well. You know, if we know something in one case is, let's use the example of Tylenol or acetaminophen as a positive control treatment for le like liver injury. Um, those cells will respond in a certain way. We can quantify that. And then if we run, you know, a thousand compounds, 10,000 compounds, a hundred thousand compounds, and you start seeing cells that look the same as that acetaminophen treated cell type, um, you can at least try to clue in that that might be a cause of concern for potential downstream liver injury. It doesn't necessarily mean that you can have false positives and negatives that work, get worked out later in the discovery process. But generally those similarities can mean hey, there's something I need to flag here or look at further. Yeah, that makes total sense. So you previously talked to me a little bit about unsupervised learning. Um, and that's something we haven't talked about a lot in this series at all. So what is that in this context and how is it useful? Yeah, so um, a lot of different ways that can be useful, but unsupervised learning is where your machine learning basically learns the patterns and structures in the data without you having to say, this is cell type A, cell type B, or effect A, B. Um, and in 
this context, what, where this becomes really, really powerful is in some of these really large scale data sets that are coming off of systems now. So, you know, historically high content was fairly limited in the amounts of data you could put out because it was a, a fairly slow technique. Um, it was also, you know, something where if somebody was looking for, let's say, an Alzheimer's drug, they were probably testing in neurons. There wasn't kind of a generalized platform for doing large discovery. Um, there were in certain companies, but generally not something widely accepted by the industry. Now we have a technique called cell painting that was put out by the Broad, I believe in 2015, 2016, um, that takes cell types, treats them all the same way, uses a similar palette of dyes, and then you can kind of turn around from fishing with high content, like fishing like with a trout lure, to fishing with dynamite. And those dynamite types of data sets are massive. So humans can't at any point sit there and look through tens of thousands, if not millions of images and look for patterns. You know, I think I'm not a, a neurobiologist by training, but I think, or a psychologist or anything like that. But um, I think the numbers are usually around like five to seven pieces of data you can hold in your brain at any time, time kind of looking at things. So we're never going to be able to tease through that whole data set and say, okay, these are clumping together. These are coming together. But in an unsupervised learning model, the model can learn and kind of start to pull out these features and just, you know, without you telling it anything, um, oh, these all, all these compounds look similar, these compounds look similar, these look very different. And then you can kind of dig into what the strong features are, what are the things about those cells that look different within that data. So the power of that for high content is... Actually, there's a t an amazing amount of power, and I think a lot of it we haven't even tapped yet, but um, is that these unsupervised learning algorithms can identify new different cell phenotypes that you weren't teasing out before, because maybe it's only a couple cells out of every image that you're seeing, but maybe the trend is significant. Um, it can uncover compound effects that we wouldn't have seen previously, right, because we're just not looking for them. If you're not telling it, like telling your computer system to look for a certain type of cell, if it's not learning, it might not be looking for those cells. Um, and then that can ultimately potentially lead to the discovery of new um, drug candidates or compounds. Um, so it's it's pretty exciting. I think it's you know fairly untapped, at least in the commercial realm. Um, but it's something that we're we're really excited about as a field, but also at Araceli. Yeah, no, that is really exciting. I'm trying to think if it was, I mean, obviously you and I spoke about that a little bit, but I feel like there was another example recently about unsupervised learning where you're turning the machine loose to say, find these patterns, which of course, as you point out, if humans hadn't said, look for this and this and this, there could be dozens of patterns and then that can be confirmed by a human. Oh yeah, look at that. And then find completely new things. I think that's, to me, one of the most exciting things about AI in general is to detect patterns that people aren't looking for in, yeah. you know, way beyond biology, mm -hmm. right? All, you know, and beyond consumer applications. Just, I don't know what, but it, it seems like there could be some useful stuff. So are there any success stories of that? Like something, I mean, you don't have to give away any secrets, but has somebody used unsupervised learning and said, hey, here's a thing that we found that is significant? Yeah, so I, I, I can't share any of our kind of internal tools. 
that we're we're working on. So again, we're we're more working on developing these for customers um, as opposed to doing our own discovery as a company. Um, and I've seen some really exciting things from, from customers that are doing similar work. But I think, you know, publicly facing type of document or like companies that are out there that have shared some of this, um, you know, there's tons of advancements as in, I know you've talked to other people in this field on the on the podcast before, but um, in terms of using just generalized AI for drug discovery, whether that's looking at kind of protein structure and folding, using that to like using AI to predict that, um, all the way up to looking for drug drug target interactions. Um, there's a massive amount of success coming out of a couple companies doing something similar, or one company in particular doing something similar in, um, I think they're based in China. Um, oh my might need to edit this part because I know the company in silico medicine. Um, so in silico medicine in China has done a lot of like phenotypic screening and pulling that information out. Um, I'm not entirely sure how much of that is unsupervised versus like supervised learning models, but I know they've had an immense amount of success getting things into the clinic that are basically AI inspired drugs. Um, there's Excientia in the UK that's had a lot of success. Um, obviously recursion in the US that's using a lot of this cell painting type models and you know immense amounts of other in silico modeling too um, to pull out this information and, and look for targets. So I, I think I think it's still relatively early days on drug discovery for this, but I do start think we're starting to see a lot of the trends in that direction. Um, so We've seen some really exciting things with our our internal tools in terms of throughput and how fast we can make decisions and and how the quality of those decisions um, that we'll hopefully be releasing sometime in the near future. But um, the industry as a whole is really kind of exploding in this area, um, as I'm sure you and your listeners know very well. Yeah. So now you got me thinking back to a couple episodes. Um, I'm becoming an evangelist for design of experiments. Is that relevant to anything you're doing? Because I'm just thinking, you know, all my lab experiences, let's say a couple decades ago and doing one thing at a time and small scale stuff. And now I'm starting to appreciate how much large scale stuff just for general biology could be done between what you're doing and design of experiments and how much, I mean, again, more data than we can probably analyze, but. Yeah, I, that's a great question. I listened, I actually listened to that podcast was out gardening because that's typically the time that I get to listen to podcasts these days working from home or mostly working from home. Um, and I had that exact thought. I was like, how, I'm sure there's an application for this in our space. Um, and I started thinking about it and I need to get back on that because I was like so, so excited hearing that episode because it wasn't something, it's something you think of, but like you don't, I never had the exposure to hear it called out so clearly. Um, I definitely think there's amazing applications here. And, you know, I think it's a massive amount of untapped potentials, particularly in the high content space. I know that different aspects of drug discovery are getting there, um, particularly like the structure activity type relationships. Um, but I, I think this is an, a completely untapped market for, you know, the DOE type of type of work. Um, and there's huge amounts of applications because high content's also, you know, per assay, like most assays in, in drug discovery, there's costs associated there. And that's not when you're scaling up, that is not an insignificant amounts of money. Um, so running 
millions of or even tens of thousands of compounds a day with seining and all the liquid handling and tips and all of that is is quite expensive. Um, and the amount put into that one little plate is extremely expensive. So you can kind of do your work ahead of time and and utilize the design of experiments to to stack the deck in your favor. It's even better because you're going to accelerate that timeline. Yeah. Okay. That's exciting. And you made my day just saying that you listened to that while you were gardening. Yeah. Yes. My, my one hobby is you can... I have some flowers in the background behind me, so. <laughs> well, okay. On my list of things, there, there's high content analysis, there's chemistry, and gardening for me is below that. That's all right. There's, there's things for every everybody. So. I can mow the lawn. That's pretty <laughs> um, All right. So you're we're creating huge data sets based on cell painting that you described how are those used to discover and test new compounds yeah so it, it's a little bit of my the way i usually describe cell painting which you know might not be for those doing it the most accurate way but the the way i like to describe it to people that aren't doing it every day is the example i used before you know fishing with dynamite versus Kind of fishing with like a you know a pink power bait trout lure in the certain area and like certain depth of the water, um, and that's a very dramatic simplification of it, and I recognize that. But um, it is you know it's a massive amount of data, and it's just mining. So it's you have your control compounds that induce effects that you're looking for, um, and it's it's feature extraction. So you're taking those cells like we were talking about before, you're segmenting them, and then you're pulling out the numerical measures of that. And those can be everything from the size of the cell down into what we call texture measurements, which is a lot harder to kind of quantify by a human eye, but it's basically, you know, are these pixels next to each other really dim and like one of them really bright, or they tend to be more smooth and even staining. Um, all of that information is turned into numbers um, and then turned into to feature vectors that are then used to describe the different compounds and, well, different cells that correspond to those compounds. Um, and then you take those into like a higher dimensional mapping um, platform, whether that's UNAT or, or it's our UMAP or something similar, and you start looking for things that cluster together. Um, so... Those can be used to look at things that are, you know, potentially interesting. Maybe there are known compounds in a company's library that are aging out and they want to get something similar but different for patent um, and coverage. So they'll be looking for one of those known compounds or there's something that they know they don't want to pursue because it caused, you know, injury in patients when it got to clinical. Um, so it's really both of those types of those sides of the coin that, you're you're basically looking at like the mathematical different distance between those different clusters and saying these are more similar, these are less similar. Um, hope that it answered that. But yeah, yeah it, it's fishing with dynamite is how I I like to colloquially describe it. Good enough. All right. So what's next? Are there what's on the horizon for high content and artificial intelligence? Yes, I am certainly not an AI expert, so I don't even want to try to get in there. But except to say, you know, obviously the huge buzzwords right now are natural language models and all the open, like the open AI chat GPT, GPT stuff. How are you going to incorporate that into products and, and usability? So I think there's a massive amount of promise there. Um, and for high content in particular, it's 
you know, faster. We've got to acquire this data faster. It shouldn't take as long to discover drugs, um, you know, in high content in particular, you know, and, and just in drug discovery in general, there's a big push, particularly in the U.S., to move away from animal models now and into alternate methods. So that's a big area of interest for us um, as a field. You know, can we can we get similar information out of human organoid type 3D models versus animal models? And that was actually the background of, of my grad work, um, something I'm still super passionate about. Um, you know, can we make that? Can we make that better? Can we make that faster, more accurate? Is it more accurate to what's happening in a clinical model? So high content plays a, p- a small part of that. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of value in the images that we're getting and, and the speed in which we can go. Um, and I think just in general, it, it's interesting because a lot of these AI-based tools really require an immense amount of computing power. Um, and so that means oftentimes for people getting into the cloud, which is awesome because you can access that, but it is expensive. Um, so one of the things we'd really like to to try to do is not because we're anti-cloud or anything like that, but we want to kind of make it more accessible for people to get real information out of their data and accessible both in cost and just ease of use and also the expertise needed to to run these systems and to get good quality data out. And one of those things is like in my perfect world, like I'd be able to run some kind of at a good clip, sell painting data on a laptop or sell painting data on like a normal desktop computer that's reasonably priced and something there's something to be said for that kind of democratization of, of data in general, but in, in our case, high content data. So it's something that we're really excited about um, as a potential because we like the cloud, but we also realize it's expensive. It's probably not the best thing for the environment um, always. And it's if we could do it better, faster locally, sometimes there's there's an immense amount of speed that can be gained there in terms of drug discovery and also just hopefully saving the planet sometime <laughs> from <laughs> the effects of that is the out. continual battle of you know tips going out the door and pushing electrons around through the cloud yeah. like are we creating a net benefit who knows so yeah but i'll tell you what um is now really got my attention because um replacing animal models and the FDA Modernization Act, which is, I think, what you're talking about, has come up several times in the last few weeks in conversations on and off of this podcast. So that, if if you haven't been paying attention, people should start paying attention. And it's an exciting thing. I mean, I've worked with animals. It's, you know, it's useful. You learn stuff. But wouldn't it be great if we didn't, how much easier and less expensive would everything be if we didn't have to right so much less expensive and you know I, I one of my um colleagues from grad school now works in kind of the the chemical agroscience industry and she had a phenomenal presentation at the society of toxicology about their their approaches um on kind of moving away from where they can from animal models or prioritizing animal models so using a lot more cell-based assays early to kind of stratify what you have to put into animal models um, and also doing a lot of correlative studies between, you know, 3D cell culture or even 2D cell culture models and um, the future kind of, or I guess historical looking, what, what was possible in animal models. And the correlation is quite good. There's hits that get detected in one system versus the other. 
phenomenal work that she she and others are doing as part of actually it's some of it is part of the cell painting consortium and and an ongoing work there um but really just incredibly exciting to start seeing the cost savings the savings of just you know animals in general um and it's one of those things that like one of the things that we can really look to europe for because several years ago they did pr- you know, the EU passed a ban on things like personal care products. So deodorant, shampoos, that type of thing, any type of skincare where they were no longer allowed to test on animal models. So there's a lot of benefits and stuff, really exciting stuff happening in Europe. It has been for many years that I think we'll start to see kind of spread further in the U.S. There's lots of groups working on it here, but it's exciting to see the expansion. Yeah, you would think with all the um, increase in artificial intelligence and computing power that if someone isn't already very soon, people are going to figure out, you know, what, what did we get from animals that was useful? What was not? And how can we translate what was useful to other models and eliminate doing the things that we know just don't work at all. And, um, it's, I mean, for, for high funds in particular in organoids, there's a lot of barriers to still overcome, you know, a lot of work early on has focused on taking, you know, historically high content has been grown in 2D flat cell culture models that everybody's kind of used to thinking about. Um, and there's been a lot of assumptions made that, you know, you can kind of take that same protocol of staining, of growing, and kind of throw the cells in a 3D and hope for the best. And some of that works for some cell types and some of those days and some of it doesn't. So there's still a lot of optimization that has to happen there. I think there's a lot of work on the imaging platforms to make them faster that has to happen there in, in the high content space. But I think the amount of information you'll get is just going to be ex- like increase exponential over the next several years, for the foreseeable future, but really over the next several years. And um, it's going to be a lot of shared learning and growth. And how do you make these dyes that work so well in 2D work well in 3D? And how do we extract really, really valuable information still from those 3D systems that's informative, but also different than 2D? Um, and I'm excited to be part of that, even from, you know, more of the commercial side. So it's really, really exciting. This, as always, has been a huge education for me. I thank you for taking me to school, Maggie Bantangoli. This has been great. Thanks so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. It's awesome. Thank you all for listening. As you know, I love doing these interviews. They can be great vehicles for your thought leadership as well. There's a link in the show notes if you're interested. As always, if you enjoy this content, you probably work with several people who would also enjoy it. Please share it with them, won't you? I very much appreciate it. And I will be back with another episode soon. Bye-bye.